The people that I sit with, I think are the most courageous people on the planet. They're the ones who are kind of pushing into pain. They're kind of, um, they're, they're showing up. They're, they're, they're kind of walking in the, the counterintuitive direction of healing. Welcome to the Missing Voices Project. My name is Justin Forbes, and this podcast is all about youth ministry, young people on the margins of society and the church, and how we might better love, serve, and learn from those young people. I'm convinced that these often overlooked or forgotten adolescents belong in the church, and that our youth ministry should take them seriously. So, with each episode, we'll take a look at these ideas and together wrestle with what the future of youth ministry might just look like. Let's get into it. Okay, Hainstein, thank you for being on the call with me here. This is Hainstein from Elbow Tree Christian Counseling and St. Augustine Youth Services. Hain, your job title at St. Augustine Youth Services is the Mobile Crisis Response Team, which I have to be honest, the first thing I thought of was uh, like the Ghostbusters car driving around. <laughs> it was. It's, it's, it's not much different than that. Oh, perfect. Good, good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we don't have the, the sweet um, Hearst, you know, to drive around, but <laughs> awesome. uh, when, when, the call, when the call comes, our team mobilizes um, instantly. And do you have the music playing like when you drive up? <laughs> You're right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. In the white suit. I digress. Uh, okay. Hainstein. So thanks for coming on today. We want to talk a little bit about your experience in youth ministry, but then also you have landed in a particular spot doing youth ministry, but doing youth ministry from the seat of being a counselor. So I would love for you to just tell us part of your story. And uh, since this whole first season is uh, Flagler College youth ministry graduates, maybe start back at Flagler, but um you graduated from 1995, and you had this experience at Flagler, and that set you on some sort of trajectory. So tell us your story, and then we'll get into it from there. Yeah, so I'll back up just a, just like a you know a little bit before Flagler. Um, high school kid, really, really spiritually interested and curious, and um, would have would have identified for sure as a Christian. And you know, my family was involved in a local church, and um, moved, uh, to, uh, Florida in the middle of my junior year and uh, a handful of folks really befriended me. And, and two of those folks were, um, two Mormon, um, girls who I remained friends with, um, throughout high school. And then we dated each, I dated each of them at some point or another, but, um, and the, the reason I even kind of bring that, that up is because it was my introduction to them was right in the middle of my, I would say like a spiritual nexus for me. I was really trying to figure out like, what do I believe? Hmm. And, and the conversations I had with um, both of those friends were, um, 
were helpful. And at one point, one of them even made the comment to me, Hey, I'm not really sure you know what you believe. And wow. which as, as I was launching in to my freshman year at Flagler, um, all of my roommates um, were involved with um, Young Life and had come from a place of being involved with Young Life in their hometowns. And then, which the, I had very little idea coming into Flagler that there was such a rich um, community awaiting me. Mm. And so I really um, just tagged along. Um, and was instantly welcomed into uh, in a, in a very uh, special fellowship of, of folks there. And so um, at some point, um, you know, when I was applying at Flagler, I, my, my dad was doing his best to kind of point me in a direction to have some kind of a trajectory of choosing <laughs> a major. And so, and so um, we chose accounting. Yeah, and, I mean, that, that's a pretty versatile um, major if you're good at accounting and have a mind for it. Um, and I, I was discovering pretty quickly that, um, one, I was not very good at it. (laughs) And, um, but I also did not like it. I mean, I was sitting in the middle of a math class and then my, my roommate, uh, Luke Langston, um, he's one of the kind of the key figures in my life in, in terms of friendship at Flagler. And uh, I leaned over to him and just in the middle of a math class, it was required for accounting. And I just kind of whispered, like, I hate accounting. (laughs) 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 And um, he leaned back over to me and said, well, um, why don't you do something that you love? And I just sort of shrugged my shoulders and said, I love being a young life leader. And he just kind of smiled as if to say, well, then just why don't you do that? That afternoon, um, I met with my advisor, changed my major to English, and started to, and started filling my schedule full of youth ministry classes, and um, became even more engaged in the young life community. Um, it really was a turning point, um, and you know, I think a lot of things were kind of, you know, beginning to kind of show up in my life that. Um, that were were announcing to me one that I was good at it. I think that that felt good. Mm-hmm. That like that I had um, some relational skills and um, a heart for it. I really cared, right? Um, and so that I think that 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 just felt good because when I was you know for the the bulk of a year, I just sort of was feeling a little bit like I was wandering academically. Mm-hmm. So the turning point for me was, was, was sort of that, that discovery and permission that, the, that, that community really gave me and exposed me to and professors like Maddie Hart and Martha Shen, who were just so quietly available. Right. Um, but also very, very intentional to kind of invite those discoveries out of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, I look at my closest friends in that season of life and we're all over the world, quite literally all over the world, um, actively involved in some kind of mission and, and most of us involved in some form of youth ministry. Right. Still. Wow. 
That's amazing. And so you leave Flagler, having had this sort of root system of this beautiful community and these professors that cared for you and really meaningful friendship, and you head into youth ministry in what way? What did that look like? Yeah, so I, yeah, I graduated um, in 1995, and um, at that time there was a church in in North Palm Beach, um, First Pres in North Palm. It's still there, uh, and uh, but that was a church that I um, they were offering an internship where they had multiple recent college graduates working inside of um, their youth ministry, being exposed to. Um, the breadth and depth of the church and life and youth ministry and the life of a church, as well as launching us out into the community. Really, like if we were in the office, that was, you know, like there was a problem with that. Like they really wanted us Mm -hmm. out and about at schools, at lunches, hanging out, surfing with kids, um, just being with teenagers. And um, and then the year, you know, a year after that, uh, my wife, Ruth Ann, who I – met at Flagler. Um, she came down and joined me and we got married and like, um, so we, we, we both experienced a call into youth ministry. And, and even today, um, you know, my wife is, you know, she, she just got her, you know, 15 year full-time award. Um, um, but she's been actively involved, you know, for 25 years working with teenagers part-time or full-time in some capacity with young life. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, there's a real sense that even in my marriage, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a shared call to teenagers who are out on the fringe. I I think that that has been interesting to see, even to witness like, like not even the same kinds of kids uh, all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, But but certainly there um, to hold that together um, and for each of us to so not feel threatened by the other one's vocation, but to, sh- but to share in that vocation um, it, that's been um, especially um, uh, important in terms of feeling um, validated in the call. Um, so, um, yeah. you know, for about 15 years, I, I worked in the con- mostly in the context of the local church. And for the bulk of that time, Ruthann was on Young Life staff. Mm-hmm. So. And somewhere along the line here, you know, you're working, you had a, a short stint with Young Life and then into the local church. Ruthann was working with Young Life in different capacities, working with teenage mothers, working with poor kids. Uh, I mean, you really, both of you have touched many different sort of you know, pockets of society, I guess you could say, but somewhere along the line, you, you experienced this sort of pivot to understanding yourself doing ministry, but from the position of a counselor. And I'm interested, like, what, what is sort of like, what are the roots of that move look like? Like, how did you end up saying, you know, I, I do feel called to be a youth minister and I'm going to do that from this position over here. What does that, what does that look like? Well, I, again, I think it probably like when you back things up and I and you look at okay, where was I first exposed to even the possibility or a, a model for caring for people that would offer deep care, and I think I think of Martha, Maddie, I think of Les Cummy, um, Reed Estes. I mean, he's the Reed was the first man 
who, as I was sharing parts of my story with him as a 19 year old, and he wept tears over parts of it. So I think that that probably when I was imagining what would I want to do with my life? I think that Reed's tears were like little paver stones. Uh, his he watching him be moved and and engaged and present in my story at nineteen. Um, it set the stage for at, when I was thirty five, looking at making a shift. Like I just. I felt like all along for 15 years in youth ministry that I was walking with people wanting, like at one point, um, Les made the, made the statement to Hane that to me, he said, Hane, um, when you're building friendships with teenagers, build them like you're going to know them for a lifetime. And it, and it just set me free to like, and, and I look back and I'm like, man, that was like the, the most amazing wisdom. Like that deep care isn't microwaved. It's something that is slow it's intentional, it's earned, it's, it, it's built on a bedrock of trust. And, um, and so when I was 30, 30 to 35, you know, the model of, of success in young life that, I, that I, as I was looking at it was the biggest uh, club, you know, um, it was the, the wildest events. It was having um, the most leaders. It was having you know, it was all these things that were sort of upfront and visible. And I chased after those things ferociously. And I mean, and to a fault thinking that, and, and, and there was no end. It was like the kid kept getting further away. Like what I would have called success at 24 by 34, it was, it was absolutely taxing me. Um, um, and I, 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 I'm like, there's no way I can sustain this, this, this chase. And so, um, at some point, um, um, some friends kind of reached out to me and were saying, Hey, you know, we, you're really great at the program stuff. You're like, man, like, um, what we hear, but what we, we, here's what we notice. We notice that you're usually when the program is getting ready to start, you're usually in a one-off conversation somewhere with someone. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 um, and that, that like that the program must go on, but, um, we want for you to be set free to, to kind of dive into those more effectively, more passionately, more competently. Right. So the pivot into counseling, like, um, I was kind of, again, I was, I found myself in a new season at like around 33, kind of asking a new question. Like, um, I was thinking about seminary, like to become a pastor or to become a counselor. And so I, jumped into some therapy. And at one point, my counselor, a guy named Steve Bradshaw, um, he said, Hey, that's really kind of a, a terrible question, this or that, you know, like it was some kind of a binary question. And his question, um, he gave me a new question. It was, which process would help you become the, the sharpest instrument of God's mm-hmm. grace? You know, and, and for me, it was, it, it was as evident as becoming a young life leader yeah, and sitting in that class with Luke, it was, it was, it was a, another, a pivot, like that I wasn't moving out of youth ministry. I was just moving deeper into it. 
yeah, it's not like you all of a sudden became a counselor at the age of 33 or 35 or whatever. Those sensibilities and sensitivities had been cultivated and fostered over the entire time. So sure, you you had a different metric of success and you know goals were defined in some different ways. But you were, I'm guessing, just knowing you pretty well, my guess is that, like you said, like you would lean towards or default towards, you know, being more available and present to someone and, you know, wanting to do that. And, oh, yeah, we've got to do these other things, too. Um, And so it's almost like you gave yourself the permission to just do that, like to do the thing that you actually loved and felt most called to, uh, to be able to kind of create that non-anxious presence and create space for people. Mm hmm. Yeah, right as I was right as I jumped I jumped into um, into graduate school you know at that point I had um, you know two kids young babies and um, at some point um, before that though the, the part of the decision process again like so much of my life you know with Ruthann has been so focused specifically on what we would understand as formal youth ministry you know like working in the church as a youth pastor or working in, for young life. And, um, you know, at some point we were at a couple's banquet and we bumped into, um, an old, um, childhood friend of Ruth Ann's. Um, they'd gone to preschool together, um, and had, you know, had a, a lot of shared mutual friends, um, all through high school. And at some point I think they even went like the homecoming together. Um, and um, it was it's my friend Greg, who's actually the guy who founded Elbow Tree in Chattanooga, and he was in a season where he was thinking about launching a practice. I was thinking about going to graduate school, and um, and then actually someone who ended up being one of my professors in graduate school was speaking at our couples banquet at our church, and so we're sitting around this table at Valentine's Day, and uh, Jeff Eckert had all these uh, couples at the banquet, probably like a hundred couples write something to your spouse that would just breathe life into them. It would affirm something in them. And Ruthann wrote on a card, um, like a little three by five index card. Hey, you do so much. Excellently. You could do anything you wanted, Hmm. but I think you would make an even better counselor. Hmm. there's your green light <laughs> so I think yeah it, it, it the conversations with my friends they were kind of whispering those things into my ear into my life but it really was Ruth Ann who really you know hit the hit the launch button sure and then and then support and then really supported me cheered me on you know played mom and dad when I was in graduate school when I couldn't be yeah. around in certain moments. And, um, so that, that, that pivot into, into counseling. I mean, I ended up joining my friend in a private practice that he started elbow tree and, um, it, it just from, you know, from there, um, found myself, um, making myself really available. At one point I was offering free therapy to youth pastors in the, in the Chattanooga region. There's like 300 full-time youth pastors in that area all around surrounding cities. And, and so um, just got super embedded into offering care to caregivers. 
Um, and so then like, in, in a way, like I got to be a youth pastor vicariously through these men and women who would come into my office as, as clients. And, um, and so the wellness and care they might, they might receive with me, maybe that would like sort of, um, allow them to care more deeply in the basis they were given. So, um, you know, I, I, um, I, I just look at the way that like the God had allowed me to journey along kind of like just keeping my eyes open and, um, remaining receptive, um, to, um, what he might do next. Um, at some point along in there, I ended up, um, it was actually, um, one of my great friends ended up kind of launching a, uh, nonprofit called the soul care project. And that just, again, that was like another invitation into offering deep care. And so for six years, I worked with the soul care project as their uh, director of counseling and care. And I was sort of in some ways like rolling out the red mat for people to come and get care, crafting, crafting, crafting retreats for uh, men and women involved in ministry or mission, and then doing aftercare, um, following up, doing soul care intensives with folks as they needed them or so, and, and, and quite literally. Well, I know that's a big part of your work now too, right? I mean, like care to caregivers is sort of a theme that I've heard you talk about many times. Yeah. So like, um, after we moved here to Chatt- uh, from Chattanooga to, to St. Augustine, we um, two years ago, I, I I just opened up the doors for folks to come here, and you know, since then I've done seven week long uh, soul care intensives with pastors from all around the country, and um, which is like that, I mean, it's one of my favorite things to do is to carve out like all this intentional time to be super present with someone for a week long experience where they're either launching into a sabbatical or they're coming out of, out of the mission field, just beat up or, um, and so in my, in the private practice here, um, you know, I think what I love is we, we, we tend to think of ourselves as a, as a mobile band of missionaries anyway. And that, that, that what we, what we, like God is sort of placed in us is a, is a very mobile, gift that you know yeah we haven't we have offices but we also um like shannon who works in the practice here she founded and, and directs a, a nonprofit to targeting children in haiti um, um dorothy is um, a therapist here and she really targets a lot of her clinical practice to um our aging population and folks who are in recovery like what you know she um, she's a cancer survivor I mean, she's, she's amazing. Um, so, you know, when you look, when you look at the folks that like are kind of on board, I could go down one by one by one. And, and we really want to see ourselves as a mobile band of missionaries. And that was really the vision in Chattanooga. Those are Greg's words that like, we want to be a mobile band of missionaries. And so like we would, we were deeply involved in disaster response, um, so if there was like a an earthquake, a tidal wave, a, you know, right, right, a hurricane, like our our counseling team would deploy 
as first responders down into those those impacted zones to do assessments. And so at one point, Greg was a mobile crisis team leader for um, doing um, crisis assessments with adolescents in Chattanooga. And I just always thought that was an that's an amazing, exciting, interesting role. Well, I love the idea of like trying to reimagine what does youth ministry look like? You know, so many of my students at Flagler, they're like, I love this class, but I don't think I want to be a youth minister. And I'm like, great. Exactly. We'll be a, a teacher yes. who has these sensibilities uh, around youth ministry and that, that has been able to love their students really well. Go be an accountant. Right. I don't know how you guys do all the spreadsheet magic, you know, go do that thing, but do that in the community in such a way that you are someone who is, uh, you know, bearing witness in a beautiful, faithful, creative way. So part of what I hear you talking about and have watched you do um, in St. Augustine since you and Ruthann have moved back and we've gotten to, uh, number one, have tacos together about every week, but then also, um, you know, gotten to share in ministry with each other. This idea of creating a community of people that is not only working with young people who are suffering in different ways, but also caring for caregivers to do that work themselves. But I want to ask you more specifically about the work that you do with young people. So let's locate this conversation back into the context of the Missing Voices Project. And so, you know, we've got this grant, we're helping 12 churches imagine youth expressions of youth ministry are innovating around the margins. And so young people at the margins of society in the church that are often overlooked or forgotten, maybe there's an assumption that they don't have anything to offer or that they're damaged to goods or things like this. I mean, I think the, the culture around mental health and counseling is shifting, which is so wonderful. I mean, I have so many more students now that are willing to say, I need counseling. I need help. I, I go for help. Things like this. Um, so I feel like, you know, just in the last 10 years, that has really changed a lot, at least what I'm aware of. But, you know, I'd love to hear you comment on the gifts and the experience of beauty that you have had uh, by working with these young people who are suffering. I mean, this is a very different podcast episode. Many of our other ones, you know, we talked with Luke Langston about being a prison chaplain and working with incarcerated folks. You know, we've talked with Tyler Fuller about working with young people in the foster care system or folks that are sort of uh, within poverty. Um, we're going to have a couple of other conversations about specific people groups. This is a different approach to that conversation. But my guess is that you're still working very uh, often uh, with young people that are at the margins. So help us into that from this mental health and counseling side of things. What does that look like? Right. So um I'll start kind of with kind of a kind of a setup. You know, my brother Heath is a fireman in St. John's County. And at one point um, he was kind of needling me um, about like, hey, what's it like to sit with sad people all day? And he was just kind of messing with me and kind of joking around. And I, and I just kind of said, you know, Heath, you know, um, the people that I sit with, I think are the most courageous people on the planet. They're the ones who are kind of pushing into pain. They're kind of um, they're, they're showing up, they're, they're, they're kind of walking in the, the counterintuitive direction of healing. And, um, he made a comment to me that really has been, um, it's stuck with me. He said, Hey, I don't, I think our jobs really aren't that much different. Um, he said, he goes, I don't want bad things to happen to people, but when they do, I want to be there. 
Right, right, yeah. And it, wow. and it, again, like, what are firemen? They're first responders. They, they're the ones who, like, when, when something's going down, you want a fireman there. Right. Because they're right. trained medically. They're, they know how to be calm in a situation when you're freaking out. Um, they know how to walk into trauma um, and to do it with and to treat people with such dignity. Um, and so it like when I, I could go on and on and talk about the um, the heart of a fireman. Um, I, I feel like in some ways my practice is informed by firemen. And so when I think about like pl- placing this conversation back into the work I'm doing at St. Augustine Youth Services, like the idea that like um, when, a, when a young person is feeling distressed and, and, and unable to contain these emotions because they have such deep trauma, deep abandonment, um, and they feel so outside themselves that the, that the next logical thing that they would do is to kind of is to terminate their life. Um, I, I guess when that's going on, I feel such honor to show up, to be, to be calm, to be a, a hand, to be a shoulder, uh, to be a listener. Um, and so, and oftentimes I'm doing that in the context, like I'm showing up into, it might be a trailer park. Um, it, I'm sitting in the den of someone's home who's never met me before. And they, they invite me quite literally sometimes into some incredible messes. They weren't planning on having company that night. Right. And so here I'm, I'm walking in. And so uh, the, the way that I understand myself is th- those aren't moments for me where I open up the Bible and start. It would be, it'd be so inappropriate and unethical for me to ever do that. But I get to kind of arrive as who I am equipped the way that I am to offer um, what every human deserves hmm. is, is, is an invitation into dignity and an invitation into their humanity that everyone at some point will feel the end of themselves. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's with a, a second grader uh, whose mom just got out of prison or whether it's with, you know, a 22 year old college student, that is just feeling like if they don't get an A on that test, they're going to, um, they're going to self-destruct. Yeah. The world's over. Right. And, and so it doesn't matter what the content, the context is, is as much as being able to enter into that space with people who are still in development. Like, you know, a second grader's brain is developing just as much as that 22 year old. Hmm. And so to, to, to be someone uh, in that moment for it, it, it looks, it looks different. It, there are some structures that are in place that in quite, quite honestly, help me not to do harm. Right. Um, I'm not just a vigilante. I'm working on a team. There's collaborative care. Um, you know, like when I look at the, some of the work that we're doing at St. Augustine youth services, like, if I if I if someone gets Baker acted, which means involuntarily um, submitted to um, psychiatric care into a hospitalization mm-hmm. scenario, um, our team activates providing a, like a, a sea of resources uh, for that young person and their family. 
And that, that would be kickstarted under the assumption that they're going to harm themselves or someone else, right? Exactly. So like, you know, like, like a family member might feel really concerned about their young person, their, their child or grandchild, and they, they alert authorities, whether it's through the school system or through St. John's County Sheriff Department. And then, and then we get the, um, you know, a crisis call through our crisis hotline. And then someone on our team is deployed. And, um, and, and we show up, you know, during the daytime, we show up within 30 minutes. And after hours, I show up within 60 minutes of the call anywhere in the county. And so, and we show up and we're, we're operating with first responders on the scene. So I'm interacting with, it might be St. Augustine Beach Police or St. Augustine City Police or St. John's County Sheriff. And we're making an assessment. I'm doing the assessment, but then essentially, you know, I'm, I'm listening to all these parties that are kind of there. Um, and so, um, yeah, the beauty of, um, of moments like that is it, it, it's when I imagined being involved in youth ministry, this is kind of what I imagined, Justin. I, I Right. <laughs> I mean, as you describe it, Hayne, honestly, I know it, it, there's, you, you started talking about a little more formal structure, but as you described a lot of those situations, I'm like, that just sounds like great youth ministry showing up in the sort of being invited into the worst of the moments and being present, not necessarily with a Bible verse or some message or definitely not a stupid game with a pool noodle, but actually showing up and being with them in their suffering. Right. And, and then, you know, one of one of the new iterations that just launched is um, is like a, like a, a group for teenagers who have a hard time containing emotion. And so like on Monday nights, there's about five to seven teenagers that get together in St. Augustine with one of our therapists um, and an intern and they process like what's going on. Like they, I mean, if that doesn't look like youth ministry, I don't know what does. It's inviting people into, into their deeper story (laughs) and then giving them some tools to, to navigate their own pain but also that you know because they're going to be interacting with the pain of, of their peers and and then they th- these kids now have language and become ambassadors for um, healthy you know a growing sense of um, strong mental health. Well, you know, as you say that, pretty quickly, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, this is why the church, like the collection of local churches here in St. Augustine, for example, needs to befriend and partner with someone like yourself and a group like Elbow Tree or St. Augustine Youth Services or some of the other assets in our community. And, you know, at the the continuing education forum, the youth ministry conference type thing that we have here at Flagler, one of the first things that we stumbled into was having a workshop on youth ministry and mental health. And it has for the last three years now been the most, uh, you know, I guess celebrated or successful workshop of the forum every single year. And it's always full. And the feedback that we get is that that was one of the most helpful things. And so we've done kids in crisis. We've done kids struggling with anxiety and depression, uh, you know, a number of those different things. And the clear lesson to me is that youth ministers are aware of kids that are struggling with anxiety, self-harm, depression. You know, they're vulnerable in some particular way and that we want to move in that direction. Um, and need help doing it. And so on some level, part of what I want to say here, I guess, is 
hey, everybody listening, go find your elbow tree, go find your Hane in your community and just take them to lunch and say, hey, I'm working with a bunch of kids. A bunch of them probably need your help too. Let's you know forge a relationship. I mean, I, I feel like you, what you talked about in Chattanooga and what I've seen you do here in St. Augustine reflects some degree of that. Am I right? Yeah. And I, I think, you know, while I was, you know, for half of my master's degree, I was work, still working on a church staff. And then for half of it, I joined the Chattanooga Youth Network um, as a part of their, I was, I was functioning as a creative director and offering care to youth workers. And... But that introduced me to, you know, the, the, like I described earlier, this sea of, of men and women who are serving thousands and thousands of teenagers in Chattanooga. And, to, um, you know, in that process, they all watched me launch into private practice and they saw me as an ambassador um, and a partner in ministry. So whenever they would find themselves like in a scenario, they're like, hey, hey, Give me a ring. I have a question. I've got a teenager that's going through this, a teenager going through that, or I've got a family in this situation. Like they would then reach out to me or someone in our counseling practice. And, and just sometimes it was spitballing ideas and trying to understand and conceptualize what's the best care that we can offer for them versus the, you know, versus the Lone Ranger model is sort of the, the youth minister that thinks that they're kind of like the one-stop shop for everything. Um, no, that, that, that in a way, like there was a sort of like we were building a community. It was, and, and you know, not everyone was calling in and off, you know, looking for that. But but there was a a growing sea of of ministers and youth ministers who um they they know they want to care deeply for the people they've been given to, to shepherd, and and I think thankfully they were able to recognize um, maybe where um, they needed um, a partner. They needed some, a unique perspective. And I, I think when I imagined what I said earlier, when Steve Bradshaw told me like, um, you know, enter into the process that will make you the sharpest instrument of God's grace. Like the beauty is this, in many of those cases, I don't have to go running and caring for that person. You know, I get to be um, who I am, trained in the unique way that I'm trained, and then make myself available as a ministry partner. Um, you know, in, in some instances, it's, it's speaking to the science of the way that humans are made, and sometimes it's speaking to the spirit in which what way we're made. Well, and what also is implied in what you just said is that you need pastors and youth ministers. So while you sit in one unique seat with this unique training and this unique background by being in that very seat, you're not in all of the other seats. And so you have a dependency on them uh, to be the youth minister, to be the pastor, to be the teacher, to be the young life staff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're the ones who have been called. Exactly. They're the ones who've been called into their, their unique, you know, respective community, um, reaching a unique, you know, um, kind of kid. And, you know, in every, every, I mean, Ruth Ann and I, I told you earlier, like we, we reach different kinds of kids. Sure. Sure. Um, some, you know, we, we've worked in the wealthiest communities in the country, Palm yeah. beach, <laughs> signal mountain, um, Sugarloaf right in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, Ponte Vedra. And we've worked in some of the, the, the poorest as well. Right. 
that are actually the sort of opposing community, if you will, in each of those places. Right. And and so um, the skill set for working in those communities, um, that, that's why we need a different blend. We, we, we need a sea of men and women who are gifted and skilled to walk into those places with unique skills and, and gifts and, and vision. And, um, and so f- as a therapist, like I love, I love getting an email or a phone call from the local youth pastor who's like, Hey man, you know, taco Tuesday. And, and they like, and they just want to, they, they want to bounce some ideas off. Um, right. How to better love and care and serve. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, Hayne, you know, I come into these podcasts, these uh, interviews, and I, the driving question that I bring, and this is sort of the, the big assumption of the Missing Voices Project, is that there is this beauty and gift and uh, essentially the presence of Jesus Christ in the place and in the people that, are, that have been marginalized. And so I'm usually asking the people that I'm interviewing, hey, tell me about experiencing God in those spaces. Tell me about what you learned about God, what you learned about yourself from these young marginalized people. But this conversation is sort of taking me to a different place where I'm realizing this is not so much about the young people on the margin as it is um, a, a, like a partner in ministry that we, the church, the youth ministers need in order to better love and serve and care for young people at the margins. And so on some level, what I'm learning about this right now, literally as we talk, is that we need to continue to foster this dependency that like in the same way that if my son were to break his leg, I need a doctor to help. You know, when I'm working with a young person who has gone through some serious trauma or who is coming out of incarceration or who has been completely isolated because of their disability or doesn't have a family and they're in foster care or whatever it is, right? All the different spaces that we're hoping to explore in the Missing Voices Project. One of the great assets that I need in order to faithfully move in that direction is someone like yourself who can attend to the other side of the person or to help me as a youth minister move towards those people in love. Yeah, I would agree, Justin, and that one of the I think one of the beautiful things is like that there is there are organizations in our community, in every community that that are doing good work, that have mental health therapists on their team that are in, interacting with teenagers. Like right now around the state of the around the state of Florida, mobile crisis teams are like one of the top priorities. Interesting. And I wonder how many youth ministers have no clue that they even exist. Right. And so to befriend, you know, your lo- local mobile crisis team, even if it's like donuts on a Thursday, um, just just to get to know them and to kind of just to listen, yeah. invite them to come, hey, tell, tell me what is going on in the city. Yeah. Well, there's not a there's not a youth minister in town that I think any town that would say, yeah, that kid who's considering suicide. We don't really want them here. What? No. Like. Of course, we. I, I think if anything, our fear or our anxiety as youth ministers is that we might be walking right past that kid and have no clue that that's what's going on. And we would love to be with them and for them and to put our arm around them. And so the idea of befriending some folks like yourself would be amazing. One of the things that, um, that people sometimes think about is that like maybe some of these calls are coming out of the, like maybe the poorest parts of our community. 
Um, but I know I know enough to know that's not true. But go ahead. No, but, but like, dispel it, that. It, if, if, you, if you were to look at the numbers of of where our crisis calls are, are being directed, um, twice or three times as many calls are happening in the wealthiest parts of our community. The pressure um, in, in homes that we would never know. We would never know. And and, and so I think yeah, when when we think about youth ministry, you know, some people like like me. They're going to think grassroots. I want to be a. I want to be a young life leader. I want to be a young life staff. I want to. I want to. I want to work in the trenches in the church. Uh, roll my sleeves up, um, and 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 for me, the gateway, the the, the pathway to um, uh, to, to, to discovering uh, this this call to counseling was in the trenches. It was walking in hard stuff. It was actually coming to the end of myself and thinking. I'm tired of feeling like I don't know what to do next. Yeah, and I think we've all been there. I mean, what youth minister has not shrugged their shoulders going, I have no clue what to do right now. And I would hope, I would beg them, well, I hope you've already, you, you already took Hayne for tacos a week ago so that when you find yourself in this situation, you can say, oh, Hayne, I need, I need a little bit of help here. I mean, what a great place to be referring folks to. Uh, just to build out a broader base of support that, that really comes around young people. So hmm. that's good, my friend. It's good. I want to ask you one last question and then I will let you go. Cause I imagine you have clients that are like lining up outside your door. Um, if a church wants to move in this direction, if they want to uh, begin to experiment with this sort of thing, what, what's one or two pieces of advice that you might offer? And then what's one or two books that you would say, hey, this might help you ask some better questions or move in that direction? Yeah, I think that the, the invitation to lunch, uh, to, not, to, not with any agenda other than building a relationship, um, is, is to look for therapists in your, in your community um, who may... Um, have some interest in partnering. Um, maybe just, I think that when there's a sea of friendship and trust, um, that is, that's, that's maybe, that may be the strongest alliance. Um, and so, um, I know like at elbow tree, we want to be a beacon on a hill for the local church to find us. Um, and so we, um, we love partnering with, um, you know, whether it's um, lay leaders or, or, or pastors. And so I would think that like, and, and I guarantee you, if you were to kind of track my footprints, the, the friendships and partnerships that exist here in St. Augustine or in Chattanooga, um, you're going to find footprints away from tacos and, um, <laughs> and, and, and lots of time spent together. And, um, and I think in terms of books that I would, I would, I would want to, I, I would, I would want to invite, um, youth pastors to read a book called The Gift of Being Yourself. All right. Um, it, it's written by a guy named Dr. David Benner. Um, he, he's a spiritual director. He was one of my professors. Um, but he has had a profound effect on me about becoming the person, like, like becoming more of the person who you really are in Christ. And so I, I think that is essentially when you have a counselor who is becoming more of who they are and a youth pastor who's becoming more of who they are really what there really isn't a, there's not a barrier or, or a dividing wall. Um, 
And, and another book that I would invite, and th- these are not counseling books. Um, th- these are like, just, I think these are bridges between youth pastors and counselors. So The Gift of Being Yourself by Dr. David Benner. Um, and, and The Theology of the Ordinary, um, which is a, just a, a book about living life together. Mm. Um, and it's written by Julie Canlis. And um, so I, those are the two books that I recommend. I give those away all the time. Cool, man. This is excellent. I, uh, I wish more youth ministers had a hane in their life. Um, I also feel like I owe you tacos now because we've mentioned the word tacos at least six times. Well, um, what are you doing in like 10 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Thanks, Hayden. See you, Justin. of the Missing Voices Project. You can learn more about what we are up to at missingvoices.flagler.edu. That's missingvoices.flagler.edu. I want to thank Noble Media for their production of the podcast and Troy Aragon Buchanan for the original music. We believe there are good and wonderful gifts to be enjoyed and voices to be lifted up and heard that exist at the margins of society and the church. I hope today's conversation might just push you to keep these young people in mind. What if your youth ministry made room for the kids we talked about today? Until next time, be well.